0: Hi, welcome to episode 43 of Cogan's The International Law Podcast. I am your host, Shayan, and today we are pleased to have been joined by Professor Anu Bradford for a discussion on our upcoming book, Digital Empires, the Global Battle to Regulate Technology, which is currently available for pre-order and will be released in September. By way of introduction, Professor Anu Bradford is a Henry L. Moses Professor of Law and International Organization at Columbia Law School, where she is also the Director of European Legal Studies. She is also a senior scholar at Columbia Business School's Jerome A. Jason Institute for Global Business and a non-resident scholar at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Professor Bradford is a leading scholar on the EU's regulatory power and a sought after commentator on the European Union, global economy and digital regulation. Notably, she coined the term the Brussels effect to describe the European Union's outsized influence of global markets. She is also the author of The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World, which was named one of the best books of 2020 by foreign affairs. Thank you, Professor Bradford, for joining us on the podcast. I had a lot of fun reading the book, and I'm eager to get into the discussion. So just to start off, could you give the listeners a broad introduction of the book, your motivation to write it, and how you see the present and future of the digital economy?
1: So first of all, Cheyenne, thank you so much for having me. I am am delighted to to share this conversation with you and the listeners. So the Digital Empires book is my attempt to make sense of the big geopolitical trends that are shaping the world, especially through the lens of the digital economy. So the book argues that there are three major digital empires, uh, the United States and China and the European Union that are shaping the the regulation of the digital economy. And these three empires, I call them digital empires because their regulatory models are extending outside of their own borders and shaping the global digital economy. So we have the US that is shaping the global economy by exporting the private power of its leading tech companies that have a presence worldwide. Then we have China that is exporting primarily digital infrastructure and building these networks across the world, extending then the Chinese uh, the sphere of influence. And then we have the Europeans that are primarily exporting their regulations through the Brussels effect. So there are digital regulations where the EU is taking the lead. But those regulations don't stop in the borders of the EU, but are often then shaping the conduct of companies and inspiring legislators across the world. And the book is then looking at how, what, how the world uh, digital economy changes when these three regulatory models collide in the international sphere.
0: I see. Thank you for that answer. And I want to get deeper into the regulatory models as well. But you also mentioned there is a parallel rise of tech companies and uh, you mentioned that to be a concerning development. Why exactly is that? And perhaps maybe you could share some examples in that regard as well.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So the battle that I was describing between the three digital empires is what I call a horizontal battle. But we also have a vertical battle when each of the governments are fighting or trying to regulate the tech companies in their jurisdictions. So we also have the vertical battle then uh, between the governments on one hand and the tech companies on the other. And there are many who would say that the real empires are the tech companies today, that they have become so powerful. And the kind of influence that they exert, which is an economic influence. It is political influence. It's societal, cultural influence. And they are really shaping our economies and societies. And um, the big concern have been that these tech companies are actually rivaling states. They have become so powerful. The markets are very concentrated. And there's just a handful of players that are in charge of providing the services that all of us are using in the digital sphere. And so there's a growing concern, and actually I would say that in today's world where there's very little agreement among the governments on anything, there seems to be a growing consensus that we do need to rein these companies in, that the governments need to assert their power and reclaim control of the digital economies. And and that includes then shaping the markets through antitrust laws, data privacy laws and rules on content moderation and I would say now that everybody is concerned about the development of artificial intelligence so there's also an attempt then to to figure out how we can make sure that we still have governments um, that are in charge and not just the tech companies for instance deciding sort of what is the AI future of the world.
0: And just in terms of reining these companies in and going back to the three models as well, could you also give us sort of a broader understanding of what exactly these models are? You touched upon them briefly before, for example, the U.S. has a market-driven model and you mentioned Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So could you elaborate a little bit more on the U.S. model and then we'll get into China and, and the EU as well?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the digital economy as it exists today is primarily shaped by the American market-driven model. And by that, I mean, uh, the the Americans have traditionally have created trust in market forces shaping the economy, that the model rests on the idea of free internet, um, free market, and just a relentless commitment to innovation. So there has been distrust in allowing the governments to step in and curtail the ability of these tech companies to innovate for the benefit of societies. And I would say there's both an economic and political dimension to that. So there's been this American faith that free markets deliver greatest innovations, which we need for economic growth, but also this idea that if we keep the internet free, we also then contribute to a more thriving democracy. So we have the uh, the individuals around the world have the ability to, to shape our societies by participating in the conversation. So it was a very kind of techno-optimist vision of the world that by leaving these tech companies to their own devices, we actually see a thriving economy and a thriving society. And you mentioned there the Section 230. So that is the Communications Decency Act, which is an embodiment of this kind of philosophy. So that is what is known as the liability shield embedded in in, in US legislative framework. So the idea that we don't hold the internet companies, the platforms liable for content moderation. So if they decide to remove some speech, they, they decide to moderate their platform and remove some speech as harmful, They are free to do so without us being able to challenge them under the First Amendment and say that, look, we have right to free speech. They can moderate those platforms, but they are also free not to do so. So we cannot hold Facebook or Meta liable if an individual user posts a harmful post on the platform. So this is this fundamental philosophy that we do not want to discourage these tech companies from developing innovative services. And if we set too many guardrails, including holding them accountable for the speech on their platforms, we may not see those internet services being offered. So this is the heart of this American free market model, um, where really there's a great trust in the the companies and and then basically self-regulating in the marketplace.
0: And just to go to the other side of the spectrum, you mentioned that there is sort of an emphasis on uh, furthering technological innovation, but then we also see the Chinese model where the regulation is much, much stricter, but we also see a lot of technological innovation coming in from China. So has the U.S. model really been successful in the ideologies of uh, tech innovation, so to speak, uh, in terms of advancing it? Or do you think there is uh, there is some murky waters there, so to speak?
1: So I, I really appreciate that question because I think that is something that is, is really key to the debates and the the core assumptions that that we have had. Um, about digital economy and a certain political philosophy or ideological foundation that was necessary for innovations. So the Chinese have pursued a very different model. The model is what I call a state-driven model, where the Internet and the digital economy is harnessed to maintain the political power of the state, So yes, the Chinese are very focused on innovation and making sure that China will become a technological superpower. But at the same time, they are very focused on maintaining the the, the grip of the Communist Party. So the Internet is also harnessed and digital technologies as as tools for surveillance and propaganda and censorship. So it's, it's antithetical to this American notion of freedom. But I think to the dismay of of many uh, Western thinkers and and, and us believers in in the value of liberal democracy, it has been hard to come to admit that that China has proven wrong the assumption that innovations could not emerge um, in a restrained political environment. So China has shown that, first of all, Internet is not the internet is not inherently free, it's not inherently global, rather it is subject to a political choice to keep it free. And second, that, that they are also able to develop innovations. Uh, but here, Shai and I, I, if I may add, it's an interesting thing what we are now noticing that China has been, for instance, a leader in artificial intelligence when it comes to developing surveillance technologies, like facial recognition where there's tremendous demand by the authoritarian government in China and elsewhere for these technologies. But China is actually lagging behind the United States in developing these large language models, um, technologies like the OpenAI's chat GPT that has now taken over the world by storm. And in part, that is explained by the, the strict censorship regime. So it is much harder to develop those models when they need to adhere to the the communist party line in China. So this is an opportunity potentially for the Americans and and other liberal democracies to reclaim the the argument that there will be a cost if you restrict the freedom, if you do pursue censorship and it may then uh, show as a negative effect on innovation.
0: That's quite interesting. And you mentioned other liberal democracies and you also alluded to the EU being uh, being a big player in this uh, in this battle. So conventionally, the literature that you end up reading makes the tech war out to be between the US and China. So what was your rationale for adding EU as a third key player in this battle?
1: So Cheyenne, I think my whole scholarship has been uh, probably most known for trying to make sure that I I offer an account that really puts the EU in the map. There is a tendency, whether it's the digital uh, economy or or many other domains of world politics, to discount the EU, to basically say that the EU is a declining power, it is irrelevant and unable to shape the state of the world. And I, I don't fully, I'm not surprised necessarily by this narrative. So it is true that we're very focused on The U.S.-China tech war, for instance, and we're very focused on the technological rivalry where the EU is clearly behind both the U.S. and, and China. But the EU has a certain types of power and leverage that really is of a global nature, and that is the power of law. The EU is a regulatory superpower. And we see many examples whereby the global companies are adjusting their global practices to the EU norms. So if we take an example, for instance, that everybody knows the general data protection regulations, that GDPR, um, that is a privacy standard that has really become a global benchmark on how to protect data privacy. So some of the most powerful tech companies like Uh, Meta and Google and Microsoft and Apple use the EU's GDPR as their global privacy standard. And um, there are many other examples of the EU's antitrust laws, for instance, having often a global effect. So it is really true. It's its strong role as a regulator, whereby the EU also enters into the picture and often then overrides the kind of market driven model whereby the US has been hands off and basically let their companies to their own devices. But actual implication has been that the EU has stepped in and filled that void. And now it's often then America that is producing the tech companies, but it's the Europeans that are producing the regulators that are governing. Than the tech companies including these american
0: tech companies and and you're right to point out uh, just the stringent regulation and uh, in fact meta was also i believe recently very recently find uh, a substantial sum as well and i think therein lies a criticism which you address in the book as well is the fact that that stints technological innovation but then you go on to discuss that there are a number of other factors which are actually attributable to the fact that there isn't a lot of technological innovation coming from EU. So could you touch upon that a little bit as well?
1: Yeah, so I think it is really tempting to draw this um, causality, or at least the correlation between the EU's stringent regulation and, and lack of innovation in the tech space. So there's many who say that, look, where, where is the European Google? Where is European um, Apple? And since you do not have the same kind of tech innovations coming out of Europe, there is a temptation to say, well, you are just over-regulating. So European market is not conducive to innovation because you're burdening these companies. And and I am not uh, trying to defend that the EU always gets it right by regulating, but I don't think that GDPR or now the tendency or to, to to push for AI regulation is where the problem lies. So there are many other inherent sort of features of the European tech ecosystem that, to me, offer a much more compelling explanation for why we do not see the great the biggest tech companies emanate from Europe. So first of all, if we compare, for instance, the the, the US and its Silicon Valley and and the technological success to the EU, you don't have a digital single market in the EU. It is much harder for a small startup to scale in the EU where you still effectively have a balkanized economy with 27 different markets, with different consumer preferences, different languages, different domestic uh, uh, regulations, and that makes it much harder. The second is that we do not have in Europe the kind of integrated deep capital markets that has tremendously benefited American companies, including the technology startups. So that, to me, is another uh, big distinction, that it's much more relevant than the European's tendency to regulate the digital economy. And the third one, I would would single out the the attitudes and the legal frameworks that shape the tendency for or or inclination for risk-taking. So the EU has often punitive bankruptcy laws, whereas there's much more space for failure in the US. And, and you need that, as I a, say, when you, when you are in the startup world um, trying to do big things that sometimes do fail. So it sustains much more of an innovation culture. If you have young entrepreneurs who know that failure is not fatal, it's more like a rite of passage that just shows that you're trying for big things and, and the funders are willing to fund you again. So I would say that this bankrupt- the attitude towards bankruptcy and risk-taking is really big. And the, the, the fourth reason that I would sing aloud, and this I think is extremely important, is that the Americans have been much more successful in harnessing the global talent to benefit the US tech ecosystem. And the Europeans haven't had the same kind of proactive immigration policy. So if you look at um, the founders of um, the US tech companies, it's over half of the founders of over one billion dollar startups. They have an immigrant founder, and and that is just a powerful story um, behind the, the U.S. tech companies, and something that the Europeans uh, ought to replicate. So, in many ways, I, I, I'm I'm saying this because I would like to remove the kind of hesitation that by following the the European model and by regulating the digital economy, by protecting the the user's data, for instance, you would be inherently making a, a, a compromise and, and facing a trade-off that you would compromise your jurisdiction's ability to innovate.
0: And uh, are the regulators, in your opinion, or the stakeholders or uh, the legislators, aware of uh, these issues? And have there been any efforts to address this at the EU level?
1: So I think that in in... Yes, I would say there have been efforts and there is increasing awareness, um, but it is the, 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 the ability to reach a consensus among 27 member states. It's not always easy. At the same time, I think some of this should be low-hanging fruit. So what the EU does extremely well, that the crown jewel of the European integration is the, the single market. And by extending that to the digital single market gives so many benefits for all European countries, that that really should be uh, a a priority. I would say that some other issues like immigration, it is more controversial. It is politically charged. And there are some countries that are not quite willing to give up on their sovereign control of their borders. And immigration is one of those issues where the decisions are not made at the EU level. So we see still, um, for instance, populist parties in many member states that are just against any expansion of, of uh, the powers of immigration at the EU level. So we're left with the national governments that then need to deal with their anti-immigration parties domestically, even though the economic case for the, the benefits of the immigration to all the European economies is is extremely powerful.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the detailed answer. And uh, moving on to battles, which is, of course, a critical component of the book. And you use the terms and you've alluded to them before, horizontal and vertical battles. Perhaps mm-hmm. just to give context to the listeners and I suppose uh, future readers, uh, could you give an example of uh, some of the horizontal battles between U.S.-China, U.S.-EU and China and EU just to, just to set us off?
1: Yeah, so there's actually, there are, uh, uh, I would say that the US-China battle is the dominant one that we're very focused on. So what started as a trade war and then uh, evolved into a large-scale tech war is something that is now um, really sort of shaping the the political interactions uh, or the geopolitical relations more broadly. So there's this uh, firm belief uh, by both the US and China that the economic power, geopolitical power, military power is tied to the advances in technology. So by then letting your rival uh, uh, gain control over technologies enhances their relative geopolitical power. So one idea is that you need to then restrict the ability uh, of uh, your arrival to get access to these technologies, so this is why we see, for instance, export controls restrictions on investments um, that we see uh, being adopted by both US and, and China, and then we see, for instance, investment restrictions so we both word about outflows and inflows of technologies. And, and at the same time, we also see subsidy races. So uh, these jurisdictions both want to become independent, so uh, strategically sovereign, if you like, and um, so that they can reduce their dependencies on, on, on one another. So there are critical technologies, whether we talk about quantum computing or artificial intelligence or semiconductors, where uh, the US and China alike want to ensure that they are not dependent on one another so they can reduce their vulnerabilities, which then requires them to build innate capabilities and make sure that they can rebuild their supply chains so that um, they cannot be weaponized against uh, one another. So the, the trade war and tech war between the US and China is certainly, I would say, a dominant horizontal battle. But then there's also a, a significant horizontal battle between the US and the EU that I discuss in the book, and that is more the regulatory battle. So the Europeans believe that American tech companies are overreaching, exploiting the European market and European Internet users, the European data, whereas then by regulating the US tech companies, the American perception is often that the European regulators are overreaching and they are uh, applying their laws extraterritorially and, and even engaging in techno-protectionism against the American companies. So we see battles in antitrust domain where you see that the most of the, the high profile antitrust cases that the EU has brought, including leveraging about 10 billion in fines against Google, The targets are the largest U.S. tech companies. Um, We also see many battles in the data privacy domain. And the big concern has been that the Europeans are hesitant that these American companies uh, or any other company, for that matter, is transferring Europeans' data to the U.S., whereby it could also be vulnerable to to the surveillance by the, the U.S. government. So there's concerns both of the surveillance capitalism, so what the tech companies are doing for commercial reasons, exploiting the Europeans' data, but also potentially the more national security-related exploitation of that data by the U.S. um, national security authorities. Um, And then there are other battles um, over, for instance, digital taxation. So the Europeans feel that these digital giants are present Uh, in the European markets, but not paying their fair share of taxes. So that's one of the the big battles. And I would say one of the very few battles that now seem to be heading towards a resolution. So there has been a a rare victory for international negotiations where there, there was a global tax deal that was brokered by the OECD. It still needs to be implemented At the domestic level, but that would be a very significant uh, victory for international cooperation in today's world.
0: Right. And uh, just to move on to vertical battles as well, uh, you've already mentioned surveillance capitalism, but then at the same time, these tech companies are being used as uh, targets by, by governments to put stringent regulation on them. But at the same time, they're being used, for example, as we see in the Chinese model, as tools for the government to advance their aims. So these are all conflicting demands for tech companies that are trying to operate globally. So how do how do they navigate that? And particularly what comes to mind is, for example, the, the regulation on TikTok in the US, for example, or how Apple has... Uh, has uh, transitioned to the Chinese market as well.
1: Yeah, so this is really interesting because we see not only attempts for the governments to regulate the tech companies in their own market, but these tech companies need to face multiple regulators at the same time. Sometimes these regulators also have conflicting demands. So I think a good example is when you mention Apple in China or TikTok in the US, where these are Uh, a very politically heated battle. So if we start with Apple, we all know Apple um, holding itself out as a big defender of privacy. They say privacy is a fundamental human right, adopting the European language and really wanting to associate itself with this narrative. At the same time, we know that by operating in China, Apple has made many compromises when it comes to how it stores the Chinese users' data. And also um, Apple's willingness to censor the App Store um, in China is something that causes resentment in the U.S. because it really compromises Apple's commitment to to free speech. And then many in America say it it makes Apple complicit to the Chinese uh, censorship apparatus and basically helping to enforce that. So there's a lot of uh, difficulties for these companies to navigate these conflicting demands. And there's also sometimes conflicting demands between the US and and the, the EU models. So we had a very high profile case where Microsoft was asked to hand over data for a law enforcement investigation in the US, but the data was stored in Ireland. And it was protected by the European data privacy laws. And the Europeans basically said, you cannot transfer that data and give it to the US law enforcement agencies. So sometimes these companies are in a a place where they basically, it's impossible for them to comply with multiple demands. And one result is that many US tech companies have actually abandoned the Chinese market. So Google tried to, for instance, develop a censored, uh, search engine for China, but the backlash was just tremendous in the US. So the Google users, employees, uh, uh, the management um, ultimately realized that it just wasn't sustainable. Um, The US Congress uh, was uh, uh, very harsh in its criticism of what Google was doing. And ultimately, Google basically left the Chinese market. But there's also now been concern that while China has made it Nearly impossible for most of the foreign companies to really operate in China. The U.S. market, under its market-driven model, it has been free to foreign investment and and foreign businesses, and that's why companies like TikTok, that is whose parent is a Chinese-owned Baidu, um, has been able to operate in the U.S. And now there are increasing calls for the kind of reciprocity is that you cannot have the the Chinese companies exploit the american market without then offering a, an open market for the american companies and besides there's a growing concern that companies like tiktok are also tools for the government surveillance so ultimately we can have the government use tiktok as a chinese propaganda tool reaching american users including american teenagers uh, predominantly plus also then just basically extracting that data and passing it on to beijing So these have created just uh, a a very significant tensions that make it um, very uh, uh, difficult, if even possible, for many of these tech companies to navigate multiple uh, conflicting demands.
0: I think one thing that has uh, become abundantly clear from the discussion until now is that there are multiple battles going on, both at the horizontal and the vertical level. And you mentioned that they sort of shape and influence one another. And how how exactly does, does that happen in, in practice?
1: Yeah, so I think it is interesting that what, why we see, despite all this horizontal conflict, we don't see a full blown tech war where we basically would have entirely decoupled, splintered internet and the, and the kind of different tech spheres where, whereby we would have uh, pushed for all out export controls. And one reason is that each government still wants to maintain the ability to uh, engage in others' markets, uh, take advantage of the commercial opportunities uh, that do come from being able to operate uh, in foreign markets. So there are reasons why there's elements of restraint. So at the same time, um, when uh, the US is, is seeking to regulate its own tech companies, It knows that it needs to fight its horizontal battle with China. So it cannot curtail the ability of its own companies to innovate. So it needs to balance this one, that it makes sure that they can still uh, evolve and develop and, and, and innovate so that the U.S. remains a technological superpower. And the same way also then these companies are lobbying that, look, we need to be able to export to China. Because a lot of our revenue comes from the sales in China. And if you restrict our ability to export, then we will not be able to take advantage of the commercial opportunities there. So even though the U.S. has introduced export controls, we still see the government grant licenses in many instances. So we do not see an effort to fully pursue decoupling, uh, deep coupling to the the fullest extent. So we see the governments navigating between the geopolitical and economic pressures, which is why we see the kind of escalation and de-escalation as strategies alternate in government policymaking.
0: Uh, I want to come back to this uh, decoupling and uh, point as well. Uh, uh, but one question I had immediately uh, from this discussion is also about EU. And you also alluded to sort of the ideological commitments that each of the the, the models have. So you mentioned in the book that uh, it is very important for the EU to win its vertical battle against tech companies for it to be able to win in the horizontal battle. Why Why is that the case?
1: So I think, Chen, one of the concerning uh, issues that we are noticing is that while China seems plenty capable of restricting the operations of its own tech companies, the US and the EU are struggling. So first of all, the US cannot even really legislate. So the Congress is increasingly dysfunctional. And even though there is a shift in the tone of the conversation and greater awareness of the need to regulate, we don't really see the US being capable of politically producing those regulations. So the EU seems to be plenty capable of promulgating regulations, but it is struggling in enforcing, in implementing those regulations. And so so what we may see that the EU is in many ways winning the the horizontal battle of values, at least in the democratic world, that there seems to be a growing consensus that the the rights-driven European model, whereby the governments need to intervene to, to, to protect the rights of the internet users and to protect the functioning of the democracy that that is the right way to go but there is a question of whether the eu can actually just will uh, win the, the battle on the ground and and effectively regulate these these tech companies and that is a huge question in artificial intelligence as well the eu is now uh, very soon uh, expected to agree on, the, on a very far-reaching AI regulation. But the question is, can it actually enforce that regulation? And if it cannot, it is the American market-driven model that prevails in practice. Then the companies are the real empires, and they will be setting setting the rules. And I think this is a very hard truth to swallow for digital uh, um, For liberal democracies, because we already mentioned that it's been hard for liberal democracies to witness that innovations can emerge under the authoritarian model of China. But also, it would be very difficult to witness that only the authoritarians are capable of regulating the tech companies, but there is no democratic governance model that can be effective. And ultimately, it's either the authoritarians or the tech companies that are in charge, because liberal democracies have not found a way to do it effectively. And I think that would be just a massive loss for liberal democracy as an ideology that can be advocated actually still being functional.
0: Right. And just on uh, the point of uh, authoritarianism versus liberal democracy, how do you see this battle playing out in the long run? And I know in the book you mentioned that it's the U.S. that has to come closer to the EU as opposed to the EU going closer to the US. Why Why exactly is that? And why is that important for the fight, as you term it, against authoritarianism?
1: Yeah, so, so ultimately, I, I argue in the book that the American model has failed or is failing. So there's very few who are willing to say today that self-regulation is sufficient. We can trust tech companies. I think we have plenty of evidence of data privacy scandals of the rampant hate speech online, terrorist speech online. Um, I think even if you now listen to the developers of AI, very few of them would say that we've got this, that governments don't need to get involved there's a consensus that you actually do need regulation so that is the victory for the for the european model i would say that in the in the authoritarian world there's still um, a lot of support for the chinese model so there's this idea that we can have economic growth and innovation and we can have entrenched government control so the major battle to me is that the liberal democracies are coalescing around the the European model, because of the the many failures uh, of the uh, the American uh, market-driven model in in practice, Um, whereas the authoritarian world is is coalescing uh, behind the the, the Chinese model. So that is really setting up the stage for that that major showdown, the real battle between techno-democracies and techno-autocracies. And And there, to, to prevail in that battle, the Americans, and the Europeans would really need to team up and and find a common tone and and to be able to have a sort of united front to to confront the the, the rise of the digital authoritarianism by China and its authoritarian allies. And there, I would say that the American lawmakers increasingly recognize um, that, that, that they do need to regulate. So they are moving towards the European model. The public opinion in the United States, the Americans don't believe in the free market model anymore when it comes to tech companies. Um, there's been too many instances where the tech companies have let them down, um, failed to protect their rights, um, failed to uh, sort of enhance and, and show that they can contribute to, to democracy. So the political Consensus is now emerging uh, uh, in the US that that we need to move more towards uh, the EU. But the question is whether the American political system can actually respond to that and actually then institutionalize that emerging consensus in the actual uh, revised uh, legal frameworks.
0: And just on that point, I think one point from the book, which I found to be very interesting in this regard, is that you also mentioned that uh, the U.S. response to the U.S.-China tech war, for example, the dispute over semiconductors, has in fact perpetuated the Chinese state-driven model where the U.S. has sort of departed from its typical market-driven model into something which resembles a bit more the Chinese model. So could you shed some light on that as well and exactly how, how that took place?
1: Yeah, so this is, to me, it it was one of the interesting conclusions that I arrived at in the writing process is that the U.S. is explicitly or at least implicitly bolstering uh, the the Chinese state-driven model. Because what we see now is that often even U.S.-led moves towards more assertive state involvement in the economy. So the U.S. has abandoned its commitment to markets. It has, a, a, it is leading in, in handing out subsidies. So something that it has always we've associated with the Chinese state-driven model. The U.S. is restricting the access to its own market by controlling investments. The U.S. has been vehement in implementing uh, stringent export controls. For instance, in semiconductors, these are all tools that are more in line with the Chinese state-driven model. So the U.S. is still committed to to political freedom. It's not uh, moving towards censorship. But if you ban TikTok in the U.S. market, it's very hard to distinguish that line that there it's the government who is uh, controlling what kind of information and what platforms the Americans are, are using. So the U.S. is moving towards more of a state-driven uh, model by abandoning its own commitment to the market-driven uh, principles. And I think that's that's one of the, the interesting uh, ways to describe the battle, that the, the U.S. is um, basically fighting the battle using the tools of Beijing and, and moving it more to the territory where China has been all along. Uh, and and where China has uh, a, a significant experience in in fighting this as a as a state uh, driven battle. And ultimately, one question is that whether the u s. should be playing to its own strengths to prevail, that whether it still needs to have faith, that that freedom and 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 so whether it's free markets and um, its commitment to economic openness is still what explains why the u s. has been successful to date. And it would be successful also for the US and the US would be better off and the world would be better off in holding on to those very fundamental convictions going forward as well.
0: And and just on a related point, uh, the EU and China are likely to have consistent policies throughout. and uh, But in the US, we can see that that tends to change with sort of the leadership that you have. So how would, Your conclusions differ if, for example, there was a Republican leadership in the in the upcoming elections, and Trump were for example to be reelected.
1: So it's actually interesting that uh, we see more of a bipartisan consensus. Um, So it's not even that it's a, a, a Republican agenda or Democratic agenda. So we saw a turn against China and against tech companies under. Uh, Trump presidency. But President Biden um, has has continued a very hard line against China and has continued a particularly hard line against tech companies as well. So in that sense, we don't see a major shift. And I wouldn't expect to see a major major shift if, uh, if uh, Trump was again uh, in the office. But at the same time, there are somewhat different concerns. So for instance, both Democrats and Republicans are worried about a lack of content moderation or then the kind of wrong kind of content moderation but they don't fully agree on what the problem is so republicans worry that there's censorship of conservative speech so that's what the platforms are doing whereas democrats including then president biden has been more concerned about for instance disinformation and and hate speech so uh, so there have been um, um sort of some differences obviously in emphasis was also in the kind of tone that President Biden is a committed multilateralist and you see a big shift in um, the transatlantic relations. So the U.S. and the EU are seeking to align their positions in a uh, um, trade and technology council. And that has been uh, obviously much easier uh, with President Biden in charge uh, compared to the the very um it was a low point in transatlantic relations when there was no trust when President Trump was in charge. So the prospects of what we talked about earlier, of the EU and US working in unison and trying to form a cohesive uh, position and, and form a coalition of techno-democracies against uh, China, I think those prospects are much greater when you have a president like President Biden in charge. Right.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the answer. And uh, just sort of transitioning towards the end and I'll, I'll quote from the book on this point some battles will likely wane, others will intensify so what potential outcomes do you see as a as a culmination of all of these battles and how do you see sort of this uh, this regulation and all of these digital empires going forward you mention and disregard the possibility of a unipolar and a multipolar world so what exactly do you see happening in the in the long run
1: yeah, so I think this is really interesting that I am not willing to predict that we see a binary outcome, that we would get into a good old world of globalization and international cooperation and global Internet. I think that the rifts are too deep and that the disagreements are genuine and difficult to overcome. So I see a continuing conflict to be a, a dominant feature of the digital economy. But at the same time, I think those pressures for restraints are there as well. So I don't necessarily see a full decoupling. You already see the rhetoric shifting from decoupling to de-risking, something that the Europeans pioneered and then the Americans and, and G7 uh, subsequently embraced. So there's going to be targeted uh, 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 sort of areas where the tech war will continue to be intense. Um, but I think there are still attempts to find uh, what, what you say, is sort of uh, areas of agreement where, where some collaboration still remains possible and where we still uh, retain the, the channels for uh, uh, companies to continue to do business in each other's markets. So I think there's uh, the book by Mark Leonard called The Age of Unpeace. I think that unpeace captures it pretty well. So we don't really see full blown war. Nor do do we see a real peace, but we are somewhere in that uncomfortable territory where we are trying to maintain the conflict is more manageable because of those pressures for restraints. Yet it does remain costly and it does remain uh, real and it does require real management and leadership at the era where I think we don't have full confidence that our leaders are committed and capable in weathering uh, these these difficult um, conflicts and navigating them in a way that we could get to a much, much better place. So it is not a the most negative scenario that I'm necessarily advocating, even though there are paths to real failure. But at the same time, despite my sort of innate optimism, I find it hard to paint a particularly positive picture. The stakes are high, the conflicts are real, and and uh, I think the uh, any sort of path towards a, a better a, a prosperous uh, more peaceful future is is also um unfortunately unlikely
0: uh a bit gloomy I have to say and uh, on 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 that note you also mentioned uh, just uh, the the word techno democracies and uh, the potential of uh, a coalition forming between uh, democracies and authoritarian regimes on the on the one hand but we also see that Uh, within the context of the Ukraine-Russia war, that a lot of states, for example, Brazil and India, have not really taken an open position. So do you really see states fitting into, or at least a part of the states fitting into one box or another, because... uh, Oftentimes what happens is that states like components of the US model, they like components of the Chinese model and they sort of mesh them together to fit what they need. So do you really see sort of that open battle between these techno democracies and authoritarian regimes?
1: So I think that's a really important question for us to uh, touch on because this is very different to when we had the Cold War and we had the communist and capitalist camp I think the the spheres of influence are often overlapping, and there are many more countries that fall kind of between the different different models, and that are not fully committed uh, techno democracies and not fully com- committed authoritarians. And I think you mentioned Brazil and India, which I think are terrific examples, extremely important large markets, and at the same time, it is very difficult for. Uh, there's some notion of democracy that the US and the EU have articulated to say that they fully fit into everything that India is doing. But at the same time, there are many reasons to suggest that India is nowhere comparable to what, what China is doing. So I think there are many what you call swing states or battleground states, where you do see the continuing presence of American tech companies, Chinese digital infrastructures, and European laws regulating, those companies and the infrastructure. So you see the digital empires being present and continuing the battle for influence in many of those those large markets. And that's why I think it is hard to even see that this uh, attempt to build a cohesive coalition of techno-democracies would be that easy. If you have too strict of a criteria of what it means to be a real techno-democracy, you might risk pushing many of these swing states to the, the Chinese sphere of influence. And also we need to recognize that, that the US and the EU as kind of leaders of these coalitions so of democracies, they have serious struggles inside, they own jurisdictions. So we have many examples, I mean, culminating in the, the capital uh, insurrection, uh, 6th of January a few years ago, when we um, had a, a, a sort of serious threat Uh, whereby uh, big parts of the population was denying the outcome of a democratic election. The Europeans are struggling with uh, kind of uh, authoritarian regimes. If you have Hungary, uh, you have uh, breaches of rule of law in countries like Poland. And that sometimes make it hard for the EU to say that it could be a beacon of democracy and and endorse those values and and, uh, sort of model those values for the rest of the world. So what we do realize that... um, the, the there is a slide towards authoritarianism across the world and and the democracies really need to make sure that they have their own house in order and they they uh, shore up the democratic institutions and recommit to those ideas in their own jurisdictions in order then to to better build a, a sort of digital economy on the foundation of those principles and that ideology.
0: Right. And uh, with that, I hand it over to you one final time for any concluding thoughts or key messages you'd like the listeners and uh, future readers to take away from the book.
1: So I guess one of the main um, uh, goals of writing the book is that we need to realize that, that we do have a choice. We do have a choice as societies, as governments, as tech companies, as individuals on what the digital future will be like. I do not endorse the kind of techno determinist vision whereby the tech companies will automatically be able to win the vertical battle. So ultimately they cannot force their way into mergers. They cannot operate in the markets if they are banned from operating in those markets. If they are asked to pay, required to pay digital taxes, they do need to ultimately pay those digital taxes. But the governments do need to understand that by making those choices, Um, The future is very different under the market driven model, under the European rights driven model or under the Chinese state driven model. So in many ways, the book is an invitation to lay out uh, what those choices are and what they mean for individuals and societies and then make us much more thoughtful to understand what are the stakes in making those choices and hopefully make better choices as a result.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Professor Bradford. This brings the episode to an end. Thank you very much again for joining us and we'll see you in the next episode.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me, Cheyenne.